We've been in this letter to the Philippians and we have, uh, we have titled this series, our study, The Gospel of Joy. Because what I hope you've seen as we've looked at all the different things that Paul talks about in this letter, there's a theme that he comes back to over and over and over again. He can't get away from it. And it's this theme of joy that there is in this life, in the gospel, a real, concrete, ultimate joy that is not dependent and cannot be affected by my feelings or by my circumstances. And so it's only fitting, if that's true, it's only fitting that he would round out this letter by talking about joy and contentment. Being content. Being satisfied. And the joy that that brings. So if you would, read with me here. Uh, We're just going to read here. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have, re- you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God will stand Forever. This is God's word for us tonight and as we wrap up this semester. So I just want to jump right into it about contentment. Joy and contentment. Joy, sorry, joy. Contentment is elusive, it's counterintuitive, and it's ours. It's elusive, it's counterintuitive, and it is ours. Ours in Christ specifically. So the first one here is contentment is elusive. Don't know how familiar you are with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, but uh, in the book and in the old movie at least, I don't don't really care for the new movie, Veruca Salt, right? She was that spoiled brat. She's basically as a character an object lesson for all of us of what discontentment looks like. It's ugly, right? She's a spoiled brat. She's very discontent. She wants everything. She wants it now. And in the old movie at least, she sings this song. I want the world. I want the whole world. I want to lock it all up in my pocket. It's my bar of chocolate. I want it now. Before she falls as a bad egg through the chute and into the furnace. The furnace? Anyway, sorry. (laughs) Veruca, sweetheart. Um, It's a great movie. I'm sorry. That was not in my notes. I want it. How do you, let's pray. Um, the author of Ecclesiastes, if, you ever read, if you've ever read Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, the author of Ecclesiastes actually poses an interesting question. What in the world, in all of the world, what in the world is there for you to gain for all of your toil? For all of your striving, for all of your seeking, what in the world could there possibly be for you to gain? And his point is, I've done it all. And I can tell you that there's nothing. 
Jesus then, we fast forward in history, Jesus in His own ministry, in His own time, He actually took that question and He flipped it it upside down a little, little bit. He said, what gain would it be for you if you had the whole world but forfeited your soul? When you look around... I think you, I could very easily make the case. When you look around, it seems that the whole world is colluding against all of us to stir up discontent. I think y'all would agree with this. Every ad you see, every pop-up on a website, every commercial on TV, everything around us is constantly telling us you deserve and you need more. Right? You got this $900 iPhone last year. Well, here's a new one. And we all line up and buy it. At least we used to. Not anymore. Sorry, the stock's going down. Um, So that illustration is not so apt anymore. Everything around us is telling us this. It's whether it's the way our peers are doing in school around us or the way they're involved in extracurriculars around us. This even invades our spiritual circles, does it not? Everything is telling us you deserve and you need more. It's actually funny. You go back in history. I'm talking about something unique here actually to America. In the 1830s, there was a guy named Alexis de Tocqueville that came over to tour America to write about it, to, to send back to, uh, to the Western world in Europe. And he noted this about America when he toured it in the 1830s. He said, a strange melancholy haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. Hear that again. A strange melancholy haunts the inhabitants of this country. In the midst of abundance. That was nearly 200 years ago. And I would suggest that that has persisted decade after decade in our country. It's a fact about being American. It's the American dream. Is that we all want more. We're in the midst of abundance, but we all want more. And de Tocqueville would go on to note this. The incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. He wasn't setting out to write a spiritual uh, work when he wrote that. But think about that. Think about the words that he used. A strange melancholy. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? It's that feeling that we all have in any realm of our life. We all do this. No matter how well things have gone or how poorly, we think to ourselves, we feel this impulse from within that there's got to be more. No matter how much I get, no matter how far I get, there's got to be more. We set benchmarks for ourselves. We set goals for ourselves. We set, we set desires for ourselves that if I can just get a hold of that, then I will be there. And as soon as we get there, we know, if we're honest, it didn't get us where we thought it would. There's got to be more. It's never enough. And we all kind of feel this. And so is it any wonder to you, especially in our American Christian context, that people have latched on to Philippians 4.13 in the way that they have? And I would suggest to you when I say in the way that they have, they've done it the wrong way. Because most of us, our American Christian ears, hear Philippians 4.13 and we either think about Tim Tebow's dreamy eyes or we think about this kind of American dream that if I set my goals properly, if I put the right effort into it, I kind of get this strain American dream God-blessed twist to God will help you get there. And that's the way we want to read it. We really like this idea because all of us have grown up being told by culture, by our parents, by everything, that you can be anything and everything you want to be. 
And I say this a lot, actually, when I visit churches over six years in campus ministry. One thing that I've learned very tangibly, and I believe this wholeheartedly, we have nearly destroyed an entire generation with that lie. It's a lie. You cannot be anything and everything you want to be. It is not possible. I want to play in the NFL because I love football. I am 5'6 and not athletic, at least not enough. I'll never be in the NFL. Now, okay, okay, that's a hyperbolic illustration, right? But again, we've nearly destroyed a generation with the lie that you can be anything that you want to be. Because here's the problem about that, that... You know, it sounds great, it sounds encouraging, but the thing that we have been blind to for a long time is how incredibly burdensome that is. Because if you don't end up being what you wanted to be, what does that mean you are? Nothing but a failure. And I know all of you feel this because that's the way that you go to class. It's the way you go to school. It's the way you go to parties. It's the way you go home for the holidays. You carry this with you because that's what's been ingrained into you. And so we're drawn to Philippians 4.13 because it sounds like a goal-setting American dream kissed by God in the process. But what did Paul say? Back up. Look at what he said. I know how to be brought low... And I know how to abound. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, if you read that closely, it kind of causes you pause, doesn't it? Because it's like, shouldn't, shouldn't contentment be obvious to us in plenty? Shouldn't, when we are abounding, shouldn't contentment be something that's easier to attain? But I think Paul, I mean, he's given them equal weight, but I think Paul would agree it's actually harder, is it not? Have you ever stopped to think about how you are walking through periods of your life when you feel like everything is going really well? Have you ever stopped to think about where your heart is in those times of your life? When she said yes to you, when she said she likes you too? When you got the grade that you worked so hard for, when you got the job that you were just crossing your fingers against all hope that you would get, when you ended up with somebody that you're going to marry before you're done with college, have you thought about where your heart is in those moments? I would suggest, I think you would agree with me, that that's kind of the easiest time to rely on yourself. And to rely on your own abilities and to forget anything else. I'd say it's one of the easier times to put your hope in the comforts and pleasures that you enjoy in that moment. Even though you would agree and know that they aren't going to last. But ironically, it's also the easiest time to fall into discontent. Why? Because contentment is elusive. And everything around us is grasping at it and grasping at us, trying to tell us that we need more. The American dream... That all of us have been striving after in our own ways says that finding happiness, finding true joy and happiness in this life is always going to require more of you. You're always going to need more. You're always going to need to be better. You're always going to need to be bettering yourself. Why is self-help the largest section in the bookstore? Because everybody wants to know what they need to do to fix their life. Because if I'm going to keep happiness, am I going to attain happiness i got to keep trying. But Paul says that true satisfaction has nothing to do with our circumstances. 
True contentment has nothing to do with how well you think you're doing. In fact, it can't depend on these things. Why? Because contentment is elusive. Well, why is it elusive? Let's move to the second thing here. Because contentment is counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive. How do, I want you to think for yourself. Maybe, maybe being content is not something you've, you've consciously thought about, something that you need to work on. But how do you picture contentment? What does your life look like in your head in a state of contentment? Or if you were to attain to contentment, what would that look like to you? Picture that in your head. I think most of us probably think of contentment in these kinds of terms. A state of maybe seeing or believing that we don't need anything else. Right? We, that's kinda, kinda, we kinda have this image, I think, in our heads that it's when it, true satisfaction, true contentment is that state where I'm able to stand alone and stand apart from whatever my circumstances are. And so if you're picturing this in your head, it's kind of an island. Right? I'm an island unto myself. When I'm truly content, when I truly become okay with myself and okay with my life, with who I am and what's happened to me and what's happening around me, then I'm kind of just on this island of independence and I, nothing can faze me. And maybe there's some sense in which there are ways in which that would health, in healthy ways apply. But I would suggest that's not what Paul says. Because if you look at 4.13, what Paul is saying is that I needed something to be content. There's something that I needed that I didn't have, that I couldn't get on my own, and I never would have, that I needed to be content. What did he need? He needed the strength of Jesus. He needed Jesus. He needed Jesus to strengthen him. That's what he needed. I needed something I didn't have. I needed something I couldn't get myself. But listen to that phrase again. I needed something I didn't have, and I needed something I couldn't get myself. Does that not sound like the beginning of the pathway to discontentment? So wait, you're telling me i got to realize that I need something I don't have and that I can't get. Is that not going to lead to more discontentment? But that's not where it leads Paul. It leads Paul to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, not set goals like I'm going to bench 225 pounds. Not like that. Or beat Alabama in the SEC championship. Nope. Didn't happen. Um, yeah. Roll tide. Uh, is that not the beginning of the pathway to discontentment? Interesting you asked that question. Listen to how Paul recounts this for himself in Romans chapter 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Now what law are you talking about, Paul? For I would not have known what it is to covet, meaning acting out on my discontentment. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin... Season and opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be the death of me. 
Now, that's fascinating in a bunch of ways that we don't have time to break down. But I want you to see what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that when I really examined the law, when I really tried to take it to heart, I thought I was doing just fine. I even looked at at commandments 1 through 9 and said, I'm doing pretty well here. But then I came to 10 and I was undone. I got to the 10th commandment. It said, don't covet. Don't feed your discontentment by wanting what you do not have. I thought the key to life was striving after that which I did not have to perfect in me, in myself, that which was not perfect. But the law forbade even that. And sin came alive. And I died. Meaning, I could not be the answer I was looking for in this life. Meaning, I needed something desperately that I did not have. Meaning, at the core of my being, I had to realize I was in my heart discontent and I could not do anything about it. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? Because what is Paul saying happened to him after that? It took that, it took that death to believing he could do anything about it, to realize that he couldn't, to realize finally and fully in Jesus he could be content. It was counterintuitive. He had to see his discontentment before contentment was even a possibility. Since my man, where was Walker? Yeah, since my man Walker did, uh, did our uh, Shia LaBeouf song at the open mic night, which I had never heard that before and I hope you do it again, it was amazing. Shia LaBeouf, for all you Shia LaBeouf fans. It's a weird introduction. In a candid interview years ago, he says this, and given how his life has gone since then, it's not surprising. Sometimes I feel like I am living a meaningless life, and I get frightened. I don't give a blank about the money anymore. I used to. You see, the good actors, they're all screwed up. They're all in pain. That's a profession of bottom feeders and heartbroken people. I have no answers to anything. None. Why I'm an alcoholic? I haven't a blanking clue. What is life about? I don't know. I don't handle fame well. Most actors on most days don't think they're worthy. I have no idea where this insecurity comes from, but it is a God-sized hole. If I knew, I'd fill it and I'd be on my way. That last part hits me every time. He was so close and he didn't even know it. It's a God-sized hole. If I knew, I'd fill it and I'd be on my way. You see, true contentment is counterintuitive. You cannot even begin to approach attaining it until you've seen how truly empty of it you are. We can't even begin to approach it until we understand that our biggest barrier to contentment in this life is is believing that we are on our our own to grasp it, believing that we are on our own to set the goals to get to it. But that only leaves us once again grasping for more. So contentment is elusive. Contentment is counterintuitive. It's almost impossible to see. But the beautiful thing that Paul says here, and why people rightly cling to this verse, a very popular verse, 413, is because contentment, what Paul says, is ours in Christ. It is. Meaning, I can be full. I can be filled. I can be whole. I can be satisfied. 
at the core of my being in Christ. Paul's asserting that in all circumstances, in any circumstance, even when he's tempted to think too much of himself, even when he's tempted to despair, he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. That's the secret that he's talking about. He mentions a secret here. It's not just ignoring circumstances. It's not saying, look, just don't even think about your circumstances. It's not about rising above your circumstances. God won't give anything you can't handle. That's not true and not in the Bible, by the way. Different sermon. He's not, it's not about just resigning yourself to your circumstances. Go get him, Tiger. Um, sorry, podcast. Somebody's going to play ultimate. Um, rather, it's living in those circumstances... In Christ. It's not ignoring them. It's not rising above them. It's not resigning yourself to them. It's living in them in Christ. And here's the thing. And this is what, how I want to close and give you kind of this full picture of this letter right here. Do you not see how beautiful of a bookend this is to Philippians 1 verse 21? So if you go back to Philippians 1 verse 21, Paul said, For me to live is Christ. And he was talking about the fact that he wasn't totally sure, am I going to live or am I going to die? I don't know. But for me to live is Christ, no matter my circumstance. And now we get the bookend. That I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, how is that helpful? And here it is. Because in Christ, if I understand myself to be in Him, what I understand then is that I possess everything. If I am in Christ and Christ is in me, I possess everything. And that is what empowers me to be content. And so let me run this down for you. If you are a Christian tonight, maybe you've heard a name it, claim it. This is not prosperity gospel, but let me say it like this. If you are a Christian tonight, If you name it, I can guarantee you it is already yours in Christ. If you name it, if you are a Christian tonight, if you name it, I can guarantee you it is already yours in Christ. Whatever you desire, whatever you long for, whatever you work for, it's already yours. The problem is, is you're not seeing it that way. Now, we could have spent the whole 30 minutes on this, but let's just run down some examples here. What are you really looking for in all your achieving? In all the efforts and all the energies, physical, emotional, and spiritual, that you pour out towards achieving while you are in this place called college, what is it for? Is it not for honor? Is it not for glory? Is it not for reward? By the way, you were created for those things. Those things already belong to you in Christ. Ultimately. This is the one whom in heaven, in Revelation, we see that all the hosts of heaven take their crowns off and cast them at his feet. And it's that same one whom everybody cast their crowns at his feet. He promises to give those who conquer the crown of life. You get a crown. You have a crown if you're in Christ. What is it that you find yourself looking for in relationships? My favorite, in friendships especially, my favorite relationship book title is Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. 
Right? Because if we care about our relationships at all with anybody, with our parents, with our friends, with significant others, whoever, right? They're going to be a struggle at times. Struggles to be honest, struggles to be vulnerable, struggles to be trustworthy, all these things. What is it that I'm ultimately looking for in friendships, in relationships? Can you really tell me it's not already yours in Jesus? Who will never leave us and never forsake us. Who promises that he's with us always even to the end of the age. What about when you think about your family? Maybe it's the past you've had with your family. How your family has made you who you are today. Or maybe it's you think about the family you're going to have one day. What is it that you're looking for and longing for in those thoughts? Do you not already have them in Jesus? The true elder brother who not only welcomed us back in at his own expense, he came looking for us in order to welcome us back to his own expense. That we might have union and communion with him, but also ultimately that we would be united back with his father. For those of you justice junkies, that's a weird term. I don't even know where that came from. But for those of you... Who throws yourself, and it's actually a beautiful thing about your generation, you pour yourself out to justice causes. What is it that you're longing for that you don't already have in Jesus? The Alpha and the the Omega, who tells us himself at the end of the Bible, the last chapter, that he is coming soon and he is bringing his recompense with him. And he will repay each one for his deeds. Meaning it's not up to me to establish righteousness in the world. I can be about righteousness in the world because I know he's the one that's going to establish it. Do you desire love? He loved us by giving his life when we were still enemies. Do you long for hope? It is yours in his resurrection and ultimately one day yours. Do you long for peace? We have it in the pouring out of his own blood. Do you seek joy? We are told that that is a fruit of his spirit that dwells within you. Are you hungry? He said he's the bread of life. He, are you thirsty? He said I'm the living water. Are you naked? He says I cover you with my righteousness. Are you weak and wounded and sick and sore? He is the great physician. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. Do you desire wisdom and knowledge? He is the fount of all wisdom and all knowledge. He is the word of God who was in the beginning. Who is God who became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you want Power. He rules and reigns over all things right now as He sits at the right hand of His Father who put all things under His feet and He seated us with Himself in heavenly places and we rule and reign with Him. Do you desire riches? You have become co-heirs with Christ. Not beneficiaries of Christ, but co-heirs. Do you want rest? He says over and over and over again, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's to name a few. But 
you may ask, if you're honest. What about my discontent? What about my discontent? Do you remember Philippians chapter 2? He emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He made himself obedient even to the point of death. What does that mean? He became our discontent in the flesh. He was empty. He had nothing. And he was killed for it. And to all this, Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Do you know the secret? It's a fun way to put it. I just want you to think, especially you come to an end of semester, if you're anything like me, I think you feel this. You've been looking, you just feel like you've been looking and looking and longing and longing for so long. And I think what Paul's saying here, what if he was right there the whole time? Could you believe that? Would you believe that? It's an invitation for all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would this be, even this moment, even this evening, be the end of the long winter of our discontent? Would we see that all that we've worked for, strived for, hungered for, thirsted for, you've poured it all out for us that our cups aren't just full but they run over would we see this in Christ tonight we pray amen